Saturday when I emailed uh, to Hannah Ball the text, but I sent her Psalm 121 when I intended, or when I unintentionally, meant to send her Psalm 21. Now, we're in the 20s. Last week we covered Psalm 20. This week we're covering Psalm 21. We've got Bibles available on the rear if you would like. But as I prepare to read this, I'm going to read it uh, making just a couple of notations. Uh, Psalm 21, first of all, if you were here last week, Psalm 21 is a companion to Psalm 20. Last week we said it's best to imagine, as it were, this being like a national anthem as the king rides forth to do battle. There's an enemy out there representing the nation of Israel. He rides forth leading the troops to do battle. Well, Psalm 21 is the return. And so it's his return, his victorious return. In Psalm 20, there is the the word there in um, verse 4, May he grant you your heart's desire and fulfill all your plans. In Psalm 21, verse 2, you have given him his heart's desire and have not withheld the request of his lips. So they're really companion psalms. And verses 1 through 7, as I read now, are simply uh, the only two characters in the picture frame are God and the king. Listen as I read. O Lord, in your strength the king rejoices, and in your salvation how greatly he exults. You, that is God, have given him, that is the king, his heart's desire, and have not withheld the request of his lips. For you met him with rich blessings. You set a crown of fine gold upon his head. He asked life of you, you gave it to him. Length of days, forever and ever. His glory is great through your salvation. Splendor and majesty you bestow on him. For you make him most blessed forever. You make him glad with the joy of your presence. For the king trusts in the Lord. And through the steadfast love of the Most High, he shall not be moved. That's our focus this morning in a a summer series called Summer Shorts. The messages are a little shorter, more of a homily than a sermon, but the focus this morning is the steadfast love. And note that it says, it's the steadfast love that holds the king firm so that he will not be moved from God. Therefore, as we see Christ this morning fulfilling and really being the true king, then we'll recognize it's his steadfast love that will keep him from being moved even as he faces our enemies and even as he loves us and he draws from the steadfast love of God that he has in order to give us a steadfast love. Verse 8 through verse 12 that I'm getting ready to read now can make some people, particularly those that are not Christians, a little bit anxious. It's a part that they really don't like. It's what I call the blood and guts God. It's where God judges. It's where God is wrathful. But it's basically saying, because the king was victorious, because God has heard the king, because God and the king has have this intimate relationship and God has given him glory 
honor, love, a crown, then here is the power that he has. Verse 8. Your hand, that's the king, will find out all your enemies. Your right hand will find out all those who hate you. You will make them as a blazing oven when you appear. The Lord will swallow them up in his wrath and fire will consume them. You will destroy their descendants from the earth and their offspring from among the children of man. Though they plan evil against you, though they devise mischief, they will not succeed, for you will put them to flight. You will aim at their faces with your bows. Now where are we in this picture? We're verse 13. Verse 13, first of all we've got verses 1 through 7, it's God blessing the king. God giving him the desires of his heart, giving him the crown, giving him glory, giving him love, giving him his presence. And then verses 8, we see the activity of the king with all of these things. He basically will continue to make war in almost a cleanup operation with his enemies. It's for certain. And then in verse 13, we show up. We're basically beholding all of this picture and we're doing this. Be exalted, O Lord, in your strength. We will sing and praise your power. We are so astounded. We are, we are found in such a state of awe regarding this steadfast love. Even love that causes him to go out and pursue his enemies. That we're in such a wonder of this love that is really working on our behalf. It has won us and it works for us. But all we can do is stand back and with marvel and wonder give thanks and praise, which means to sing about it. Sing about it so that everybody around us overhears. This is God's word. Thanks be to God. Okay, there's two things that I want to show you this morning from this text. The first thing that I want to show you is I want to show you the complex love of God. The complex love of God. And then secondly, on the other side of the coin, I want to show you the personal love of God. That His love for us is very personal with Him. It's both complex, not to mean complicated or hard or harsh, but to mean multidimensional. It has many facets, but it's also personal with Him. It's not mechanical. It's, it's relational. Um, I had a, a real privilege uh, with my oldest son. Shane had invited me earlier in the week to uh, take an opportunity to go fishing with him. Now, it's very interesting as we went out and then when we made our return uh, and came to the dock with a great catch of fish and they're cleaning the fish on the dock that people would just come by and they would, they would look at the catch of fish and they were like, man, what a, what a great haul. Where were you? Now, you need to know, Shane is not going to give away his secrets. So he's not going to tell you exactly point by, you know, by the GPS where we were. I mean, when we were out there, if we weren't catching something in a matter of minutes, Shane would say, I've got another spot. So he would program it into his GPS and we'd go a couple of miles over here, catch fish. Oh, I've got another spot. Let's go over here. But when we came back, 
Shane would give directions. I'd say, where were you fishing? He would give directions by depth. Oh, we were at 110 feet. Oh, what? But people, and that kind of separated the men from the boys, so to speak, are, uh, are, are, are salty fishermen from landlubbers. I even, ha- I even found myself doing, doing, I've got a new neighbor who uh, stopped by yesterday morning just to ask me something and had been trying to get me by phone on Friday and I was totally gone out of range. And I said, oh, I went, I went fishing with a friend yesterday. And he said, where'd you go? And I said, well, we went off of, you know, out of Charleston. And he said, yeah, but where did you go? And I said, 110 feet. He said, oh, I know exactly where you are. I know, oh, I go there all the time. Now, he didn't ask exactly where. He knew exactly. I said, oh, this guy's a real fisherman, you know. So Shane would give directions by depth. Where'd you fish? 110 feet. The world looks at the attributes and the character of God. And they will take many, many of his attributes that, that they look at and they will, they will try to boil them down and make them very, very simplistic. In other words, God is a judging God. And they will look at that and say, he's judgmental because he is wrathful. He's an angry God, particularly in the Old Testament. I'm glad he's not around anymore. Give me Jesus and only the words in red. You know, Jesus had a lot to say about separating sheep and goat and bad fish and good fish. And I mean, he had a lot to say about heaven and hell. But I don't want that God. I want, I want the good God, the nice God. And they'll take a lot of these things, and instead of fleshing them out, they'll make them, they'll just, they'll, it's reduction theory. This morning, as I talk about the steadfast love of God, that's an attribute that all the world looks at and loves. Nobody, if I were to announce on the streets of North Charleston, hey, we are preaching on the steadfast love of God, nobody would turn away if they were looking for an opportunity to worship in our church. If I talk about the hellfire, the hellfires of God, I probably would empty the place. But this morning, I want to take something that might appear to be very simple to you, the steadfast love of God, and I actually want to, comp- I want to make it a little complicated. I want, to, I want to show you another facet of it, and one that hopefully will be able to answer the little niggling question in the back of our mind that if God is so loving, then how can anyone ever be condemned? If God is so steadfast in his love for man and woman and child, then how can anybody, how can God ever be wrathful? In other words, if God is such a a wonderful, loving creator and God, how do you get verses 8 through 12 where it says you'll make them like a blazing oven when you appear? In other words, they'll get so hot they'll burn up. How can, how can he says that you'll destroy even their descendants? That means that you will slay not only the parents, but their children and, your, and their grandchildren. How, what about that dimension of God? How do you explain that? Well, let me try to attempt to, to do so this way. If you look, if you look at verse 8, and you see the shift there, where it says, your hand will find out all your enemies, your right hand will find out those who hate you. Um, the love of God is such that he says, I will not simply 
through my king, my representative. And you notice you have those two characters in verses 1 through 7. You have God blessing the king. But the king is put forth as the rightful ruler over his people. And he loves his people. But not everyone are his people. And his people have enemies. But notice that this king, in verse 8, his hand will find out the enemies and his right hand will find out those who hate him. Derek Kidner, on his, in his commentary on this verse, says that this king is not satisfied to wait for his enemies to take the initiative, but that his hand will reach out after them. He will be a hunting crusader, not wanting or willing for his enemies to take the initiative. In other words, he loves his people so much that he says, the bad guys that are out there, I'm going to go after them and not simply have a defensive posture for my people. But then you begin to read on about the things that he's going to do, the blazing oven, and the Lord will swallow them, and fire will consume them, and I'm going to destroy their descendants. And you begin to ask, what's all that about? Because you see, it is a portrayal of Jesus Christ. If you have your Bibles, you can go to 2 Thessalonians. 2 Thessalonians, the first chapter. See, this is, we have to grapple with this because this is a demonstration of his love. I mean, don't you want a king that loves you so much that he's not simply going to protect you from your enemies, but he's going to go after them? And don't imagine so much as they did in the day of David writing the Psalms, but imagine your soul's enemies. Some of you right now, God is doing a work in your life. You might have got caught doing something. And it may very well be because God is saying, I wanted you to get caught because I want to grapple with it right now before it destroys you. Or maybe you've got a fresh conviction about something. What's that all about? I believe that you're praying about it or you're, you're feeling that conviction even now because God has chosen right now to pursue that in your life. It's not simply because you're so smart and so controlled and so disciplined and said, okay, once I get obscenity, obscene uh, or profane speech out of the way, then I want to go on down to some of these habits. We don't do that. But God is pursuing those things in our life. But in 2 Thessalonians, the first chapter, listen to this description of Jesus Christ, our King, when he returns. Okay, remember Psalm 21 is the king is now riding in victorious. Verse 7, uh, the second portion, the second clause. When the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. They will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might. <laughs> Why? Would you stop Jesus upon his return if you could from doing that? Would you? Would you have him as your returning king? If he's a king who is protecting you, a king who says, you are mine and I love you, would you just kind of airbrush that out of his life 
Saul, I want to say it's 1 Samuel chapter 15, but the first king of Israel, the first king of Israel was in a position where he was instructed to go and destroy the Amalekites. And he went, and he destroyed the Amalekites, but not the king, and not the best sheep. He said, I decided to keep the the king kind of buddy-buddy with him, kind of use him as a trophy to eat at my table, and then kind of eat his sheep and have them, them, them intermingle with my sheep. Samuel the prophet comes along and says, what are you doing? He says, well, you know, it just seemed like the sheep were worth keeping. He says, yeah, what about Agag? Well, you know, he's really not such a bad fellow anyway. And he says, bring me Agag. Agag comes before him. Samuel, it says, literally in the Bible, it says, hacked him to pieces. Hacked him to pieces. But before he did it, he said this. He said, you who have made the mothers of Israel childless, now childless shall your mother be, and hacked him to pieces. Do you understand how multidimensional God's love is? To say that the steadfast love of the Lord, of God, moves this king means that this king will destroy, he will destroy the things that touch his children. If you are a parent, you understand what I'm talking about. Names are not important, but I saw this week a man who said, you know, regarding a certain issue in my life, regarding a certain issue in my life, I felt at one point as if it could touch upon my children and threaten my children, and I had thoughts of even going after this person to kill them. He's not alone. I have thought that at times. There is a proverb that says, do not engage a fool in his folly, for it is as if you meet a mother bear robbed of her cubs. Having lived out west, I can tell you with a grizzly bear, you do not, whenever you see a bear, same thing with a moose, whenever you see a a bear out there, now I don't get close enough to tell whether it's a male or a female, and I'm not so sophisticated a ranger that I know by the hair and all that kind of stuff. In fact, I don't care if it's a little black bear. I don't, they're not dogs to me. I, don't, I just want to stay away. If I can see them, I'm still too close. But when you saw a bear or you saw a moose, the next thing you looked around was, am I in between that and what it loves? Because if you are, it doesn't matter who you are. It doesn't matter how innocent or well-meaning you are. If you are in between a mother and her cubs, then Sarah Palin's got it right. She does. Now, if you're not a parent this morning, let me give you a different application to understand this complex love because I've got to move on. If you have a family member who is addicted, alcohol, drugs, gambling, pornography, it can be just material things, just, just credit card spending. They're just addicted to something that it's reached a point of corroding their life. Their life may not be blown up yet, but you can see it in the distance then you will begin to hate the pusher or anybody that supplies or anybody that is an internet server. You'll begin to hate inanimate objects like computer screens or people behind it if you could just get your hands around their throat to stop them. God loves you so much. He's so gaga about you that he warns people. 
He warns people, do not touch my people. Do not trip them up. It is better that you have a millstone cast around your neck that you trip up one of my little ones. He means it. He's serious about it. Do not apologize. Do not apologize for the Old Testament where we see a wrathful God to the enemies of God's people. Now, I am not trying to start the fourth crusade. I do not believe that physically we are called to do this. Christ has come, and Christ, our real king, which I have said that the summer shorts, my chief goal is for you to see, and particularly in these 20s, in these Psalm 20s, to see Jesus Christ as a real king. It is so obvious that David actually, there's some things here that he can't do. Verse 9, he can't swallow them up in his wrath. Only God the Lord can do that. But we know that Jesus Christ, Jesus Christ is abiding even now in his patience that one day he will return. Which side are we on? I would think in a church our size, it'd be a small percentage to say that I'm not a Christian. But if you're not a Christian this morning, I want to be fair, I want to be honest, and say, look, it's not for a lack of God's patience. It's not an impatient, wrathful God that will consume you. But it's a God that is pursuing you with a very complex, multidimensional love. It's not true that he simply is going to love everybody and forgive everybody. If you look, I've got to leave it. It's a very interesting thing. Uh, verse 12. Now, I've got the English Standard Version, which is the most correct, because I have it. No, it's the most correct. But it says in verse 12, and I did this last week, and I still I didn't get much feedback from you guys when I was reading out of Revelation and saying, all right, who sits on the throne of God? Who sits on God's throne positionally? And you're got to read in Revelation chapter 5, and I was submitting that I think God sits on the throne, and then the king is at his right hand, who is Jesus, but then Trey comes along and solves it all by just saying there's a bunch of thrones, you know? There's, there's additional thrones. But look at verse 12 positionally. In the ESV it says, For you will put them to flight. You will aim at their faces with your bows. Okay, now again, having had a compound bow, I know this much. I know that if you don't wear an arm guard, it's really going to hurt. And I know also that when you shoot an arrow, it tends, or it's supposed to, it's supposed to go straight. In other words, it's not a boomerang. So if you are putting them to flight, if they're running away, how do you shoot a bow into their face? What? What's that? They're running at you. It's the only way. The only way you can shoot someone in the face is if they're facing you, and the only way that they can be running away from you in their flight is that they're rebels. Rebels who are still attacking you. C.S. Lewis got it right. He said that the way that we come to faith is not so much that we're looking and looking and trying to understand God and trying to get Him to love us as much as we are fighting against Him, fighting against Him, fighting against Him, beating our hands against His chest, and He finally says, I love you. I still love you. Put down your arms. Put down your weaponry. But if we would not, then eventually we get what we want. So says C.S. Lewis, and I agree. In other words, 
They're running, 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 but they're right in front of him. They're rebels. They're rebels to this king, but not so his children. His children will know a very personal, personal steadfast love. Now, I've got to, again, start working toward a conclusion, but not only is his love complex, meaning it's multidimensional, that he's, he, he loves us enough not to be indifferent to our enemies. He doesn't, he, doesn't, he doesn't simply look at those things that would be corrosive and destroy us with apathy. He's going to go after them. That's his complex love, but it's a love that is steadfast, meaning the word there for steadfast is one of the top three Hebrew words in the Old Testament. Top three. Top three. Meaning it is certainly one of the most important words in the Old Testament. And the word is hesed. C-H-E-S-E-D. Hesed. The C is silent. Hesed. And it means steadfast love. It means it means uh, eternal love. It means forever love. It means everlasting love. It means a love that will not stop. Now, here's the theological debate. Is the love that is everlasting, is this love, is this steadfast love such that it will not end because God made a promise and he's sticking to it. It's called his covenant. He said to Abraham, he said it to David, he, said it, he had said it earlier to Moses, he said it even to Noah, he says it to us through Jesus Christ. He says that if any man, woman, or child should look to me, then they will receive my love. If you believe in me, put your faith in me, you'll receive my love, and it's over. You'll never lose it. I'll, you'll never lose my love. My covenant promise is, is I will be your God and you will be my people. Now, here's where scholars disagree. Is it A, is Hesed love, steadfast love, is it because God is faithful to his promise? He says a rule is a rule, a law is a law. Let it be written, let it be done. I will never stop loving you. You ever have, now I know nobody at Two Rivers has ever said this, or implied this in a marital relationship. But have you ever said, well, I don't know if we're right from one another or not. Doggone it, I married you, and I'm going to stick it through to the end. Another person goes, well, thanks a lot. Who wants that kind of love? Well, I married you, so, you know, I, I grew up in a farming community with a lot of people that were that way. I'm going to stay married if it kills me. And it is. And it's like, you know, it's just like the marriage is, you know, because I said yes, and I'm going to let my yes be yes. And it may be other things. You know, I sign, I'm not going to end it, you know. I'm just, you know, I'm just going to, I'm going to ride this thing to the bitter end. And many times it ends in bitterness. Is that the kind of love that God has for us? He says, you know what? Through the blood of Jesus Christ, I wrote a promise to you. It is, I'm stuck with you for all eternity. Or is it a more personal love? The scholars that I follow say that it is an extraordinary, astounding, almost unexplainable, but I'm going to make the attempt, personal love. It is a personal love that, in other words, the God of the universe loves the king, Jesus. But the God of the universe loves all the king's people as he loves the king. How can he do that? In other words, not only 
does God love you? But you know, if you really love somebody, you've got to make yourself vulnerable. In other words, you've got to want, you've got to have some hunger. You get, there's got to be something in you that wants to be loved in too. I mean, if you just are, it's just always give love, it's not really a love relationship, is it? Or if it's just always take love, it's give and take. And so the superior God of the universe, if he's going to love inferior lowly creatures, if the creator is going to love the creature, what's he going to have to do? He's going to have to humble himself. The superior is going to have to come down to the inferior's level. I'm starting to hear the gospel. I'm starting to hear the gospel that now God is so personal in his love for us. He is so intimate that not only does he want our love for him, not need, not neediness, doesn't have to have it, but he wants it. And he wants us, he wants us to receive his love. That's a personal love. That's chesed. And it will never, never end. If you are a parent this morning, when will you stop loving your child? Never. Now maybe somewhere, I've still got a few years, I hope, left in my life. Um, my prediction of dying in my 40s didn't happen. So uh, I don't know that my prediction of dying in my 50s is going to happen. Uh, but if I continue to live, maybe someone will show me but I have seen a lot of very difficult parenting situations and family situations, but I have never seen a parent, never met a parent, like I said, maybe I'm just living in a small bubble. I've never known personally a parent who has disenfranchised or disavowed themselves of being a parent for a child. They may not like them. They may be brokenhearted. They may be disappointed, but I have seen this. I have seen repeatedly, particularly mothers, Mothers whose joy, whose happiness is based on the happiness scale of their most unhappy child. Let me say that again. I have never seen a parent who said, no more, you're out forever, ever, ever. You committed murder. You committed rape. You co and we do a lot of stuff with Austin Wilkes. It's amazing to see how many of these felons, their mother is right there visiting them still. They don't agree with what they did, but they, they say, I'm, they're still my child. Still my child. Still have a steadfast love for them. And I love them. I do love them. Don't love what they did, but I still love them. But what I have seen is I have seen parents, particularly mothers, whose happiness is only to the level of the happiness of their unhappiest child. If the child that is struggling the most or the most anxious or depressed or angry or sad, to that degree, you can see the mother's heartache. That's a personal love. It's a personal love. It's not even thinking about your own feelings. You're so, you're so identifying with the feelings of that child. Do you believe that about God? Some of you right now think you have a joyless Christian life. But can I tell you? God doesn't want you to be joyless. He wants you to have life, and He wants you to have it in abundance. The things that sadden you, the things that, that threaten your dreams, the things that rob you of happiness. Now, this is not health, wealth, and prosperity teaching, by the way. 
But it is a very personal God who deems himself to be called your father to say, little one, I know. You know, we, when, when I got on the boat with Shane, I said, uh, you know, I said, as best you can pray at a quarter to four in the morning, Philip and I were praying on the way to the boat that we'd catch some fish today. Shane said, I'm way ahead of you. I already prayed yesterday that we would catch fish. You think God cares if we caught fish or not? I believe he cares. I believe he cares. You think God cares if you get that job or not? You think God cares if you're, you're, he wants that relationship to work or not? Yes. He's, 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 he's vested. It's so personal with him. He is moved emotionally. It's not just institutional love. How do I know that for sure? Jesus Christ, on the night that he was betrayed, before this table was served, in John 17, it says that he went to the place that was very familiar. It was a camping spot that him and his disciples liked to go to. It was a garden. And I bet they could say, hey, we built the fire two weeks ago. We had the fire pit over there. And Jesus said, well, let's put it over here tonight. And by the way, I need a couple of you, if you would, stay up because I'm going to have a prayer meeting tonight. This is the night. That in just a while, they're going to seize me. Oh, no, no, no. Don't dissuade me because my mind is unmoved. Like the psalmist says, there is something that is not going to move me from the will of God. There is something that I as the king must do and I'm not going to flinch, I'm not going to move one bit because of my steadfast love. But because of my steadfastness, I need to pray. So he goes and he begins to pray in John 17 something that we call the high priestly prayer. It's the king and it's God. And as he prays, he says, God, you've given me glory. When I was in your presence, you bragged about me. I was lifted up and exalted in the heavens. I want that glory to be given to them. You love me. You love me more than anything in the universe. I want you to love them the same way that you love me. And I was in you, and there was the Holy Spirit. We, we call it the, you know, the mystical trinity, and we loved each other. We were just, we were just always head-to-head -head laughing and encouraging and talking to one another. We had such a sweet fellowship. I want them in that fellowship. And you know, I've never been separated from you, even though I'm going to be separated at the cross. But on the other side of that, I want to have paid the price They'll never be separated from you. In other words, Dad, all the joy and love that we have together, I want them to have this. That's the victory that I want to have won so that they can, in verse 13, sit back and say, I have it all now because of what this king's won. And in that presence, they can sing and sing and sing. I said after, but it was actually earlier already. They had had a supper. And after giving thanks, he said, this bread represents my body. And it's going to be broken for you. Meaning, it's going to be broken in your place. My body will be broken, not yours. In the same manner, after supper, he took a cup and said, this cup represents the new covenant, the new promise of my blood. And it is this the remission or the washing away of all sin. All sin, forever. So that when you eat of
of this bread and you drink of this cup, you proclaim, you sing of my steadfast love and my death on your behalf forever. Where is the power for us to love like God loved us? It comes here as we feast again on his love. Then the steadfast love will begin to grow because as we receive his love, we're unmoved. And we're able to go from our superior position to take a lower seat to love those that so hunger for life. They can be as close as our own family, our next-door neighbor, our classmate, our workmate. But when we step down to love, we're not loving simply out of our strength, but the love that we get from this table. Here's love. Let's pray. Father, take this bread and take this cup and use it for your holy purposes this day, we pray. In Christ's name, amen. I want to invite Kenny and Shane to come forward. You'll find the liturgy printed in your program as we prepare to come forward. Shane is going to have a common cup and bread that you may drink from the cup. Kenny will have the bread and a cup for intinction. And I'm going to be off to Kenny's right with uh, grape juice and the blessing of children. You'll find the liturgy in your program this morning. So now let us proclaim the mystery of faith. Christ has died, Christ has risen, and Christ will come again. Christ, our Passover, has been sacrificed for us. Therefore, let us keep the feast. These are God's gifts. These are the very gifts of God for the people of God. You do not have to be perfect to eat of these things. You have to be hungry. You have to want for more of Him. And that's symbolized, first of all, by your baptism as a Christian. So for those that are baptized in the faith of Christianity and hunger to be strengthened in His love, to this table I invite you to come. You may yet, even as I do, struggle, struggle with sin and temptation. Well, struggle no more in your own strength, but take heart from this as we would have Him to face the enemies of our very soul. So please come forward. Please come forward and eat, even as the Lord serves us this morning.